Colossians chapter 1. We're starting this new, brand new series today uh, that we're going to camp out in for a long while. Now, if you've been around renovation for a while, uh, we started um, by going through a couple books. We went through the book of Ephesians and we went through the book of Philippians. Anybody here remember those days, going through those books? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, uh, we're going to obviously be going through Colossians. And I, I want to encourage you each week to be looking for updates on Facebook as we update our website with different things for you to be thinking about um, and things for you to be preparing for for Sunday. I hope that, that all of you have read through this passage uh, multiple times before coming in here this morning. If not, I just put a big guilt trip on you, and that's okay. Uh, so the, if you didn't get the message, that's okay. We'll figure out how to get you the message. But um, we're going to try and send that on Facebook, and then it'll kind of link you to our website. And basically my goal is just to put some questions uh, pertaining to the upcoming sermon on the website so that you can be thinking about it, so that you can be reading through that passage. Um, and uh, so uh, kind of prepare, because I, I hope, you know, kind of the way we've kind of structured renovation kind of heavy on the, on the rear end, meaning like we teach a sermon on Sunday, and then we, we dive into it on Tuesdays and Wednesdays. And most of you know how valuable that is and how, how awesome that has been for us as a church. And what we want to kind of do is now load things up a little bit on the front side of the sermon so that you come in here um, and you're already kind of ready. Like, all right, I've read that passage. I've studied through it. I, I've looked at different things, and I've read maybe different commentaries or whatever. I've answered some questions. I've been thinking about this, been praying about this. Uh, and so as we're working through it, you can go, okay, well, I learned that this week. Okay, I see where Matt's, where Matt's at on that, and, and, and I see what he's saying there, and I can see the text there and why this relates to this. And Instead of, for some of you, maybe even hearing this passage for the very first time. Um, or, at the very least, um, you know, you've heard it before, but it's still kind of a foreign passage. I mean, guys, there's lots of stuff in Scripture that, that I teach that, man, it's really the first time I've dug into that passage. You know, I mean, nobody, I don't know anybody that's studied the whole Bible incredibly thoroughly, at least at least in, in the person that maybe have studied it very, very well, still have lots more to study and would still need to come prepared as well. Um, so I just want to encourage you to do that because that way uh, it's not, I mean, part of it, so maybe we can cover some more ground on Sunday morning, but it's more for your hearts, like that your heart's already tender towards the passage. It's already open and sensitive to what God might be trying to teach you through that passage. Um, so with that said, let's jump right into Colossians. So we have, I, here's, uh, I told Rusty, I said, actually, what I'm doing today, I'm going to preach two sermons, okay? Um, and you're going, you're crazy. And Rusty goes, yeah, naturally. Uh, you know, like, that's just what we always do, two sermons on a Sunday morning. You already preach an hour. No, we're going to try and get through all of this in an hour, okay? So, because what I have to do, and I, I, I love series openers, but I hate them. Because, like, you have to set the stage for so much stuff, and then that takes up preaching time. And, you know, I guess you'd call that preaching or whatever. But, uh, like... It just, it takes forever. But here's the deal. We're on a time crunch because I want to be preaching, feel led to be preaching on the preeminence of Christ on Easter. 
Uh, that way I don't have to do an Easter message. No, it, it's, it's a great text to be preaching. And that's what comes next after verse 14 that we're going to work through today. So we're going to get through 14 verses. The first two are pretty easy. Uh, we're not really going to talk a whole lot about the greeting. Uh, and we're going to dive right in verse 3 and move forward. So with that said, let me give you a little bit of background that you need to know about Rome uh, in order to help us understand both the book of Colossians and other Pauline letters as well. Um, first of all, I'll just give you a brief snapshot of Rome. Uh, there's never been anything seen like Rome. Has anybody here done any kind of extensive historical research into Rome? Yeah, like the Roman Empire, we have not seen anything like that ever, like in history, before it and after it, nothing like the Roman Empire. Um, Rome was roughly 4,200 miles across. Uh, I mean, this is a Roman Empire, 4,200 miles across. You guys, the United States from sea to shining sea is like 3330. Um, so the Roman Empire, bigger than the United States. Um, and here to tie, I think kind of, this kind of tops it all off. The Roman Empire ruled the known world for 15 hundred years. I mean, the United States has been a long history buff. How long has the United States been around? 200 and what? Oh, man. More than 200 years and less than three, right? So 1,500 years, Roman Empire ruled the known, the, the known world. Um, and it's really neat because you can see effects that the Roman Empire has had on the world and even has on us today. Um, if you've done any kind of study in Roman history, you kind of know of the three Romanas. Um, and the first one being the, the Roman roads. Uh, we think of, and I don't mean the Roman roads as in how to lead someone to Jesus, like the Roman roads. Uh, their physical driving things that they drove on the roads. The first one was built in 312 B.C., and by the end of the second century, this is like 500 years later, there was over 50,000 miles of roads in Rome, all leading to Rome. Um, some of these roads are still used today. Now, that's amazing. I mean, they build roads today, and they last like, what, a couple years? I mean, they're always doing construction, like particularly 75 and they just did all of that right, right there, you know, and now they're doing it on the south side. So by the time they get done with the south side of Dayton on 75, they'll probably have to restart on the north side. Did you know, did you, here's a FYI, useless fact. When they built that 75 going into downtown from north, the day that it opened, it was already 30,000 cars a day too small when they built 75 going into downtown Dayton. 30,000 cars a day, too small. So hopefully this one was built a little bit better. Uh, it is much nicer. But here's the deal. The roads in Rome, obviously it's eased uh, commerce and trade. And I think more practically what it did um, is it really shrank the world. It, like, it shrank. Like A, a modern-day example of this would be um, like the Internet. Anybody remember what it was like before the internet? Come on. <laughs> All right. That makes me feel old. Okay. I remember at least life before 
you know, waiting to download a text-only email. I remember those days. Uh, I remember the... Dang it, it failed. <laughs> Do it again. Well, the internet, like the internet shrank the world for us. And then high speed comes out, like that shrank even more. You know, I mean, it's like having Roman roads and having a horse buggy and then like having a jet. Like, it's like the difference. So, so the internet for us shrank the one. We can go on and find pictures of anything, of any place, of any country. We can see aerial shots. I mean, we can research what it's like to be in that culture or even written by people who live in that culture. Some people outside. Like, I mean, it just it shrank the world. So the Roman roads shrank the world. And they created a culture in which cultures, ethnicity, food, and religion began to mix together. That's where we kind of see some of the first forms of major syncretism, where, where different cultures are kind of combining, and particularly religious cultures, take, taking a little bit of different religions and combining them into one. Um, or even maintaining your own religion, but then adding different forms of other stuff to your practices. Um, an example of, of syncretism today would be uh, Tex-Mex. Um, anybody here like Tex-Mex food? I can't stand it. Come on, you all like, you're like every, every week everybody's like, oh, we're going to Chili's. That's Tex-Mex. It's terrible, right? <laughs> it's absolutely, like if I want Mexican, I'm going to go get Mexican. And when I want Texas, I want to go get Texas, right? Not Tex-Mex. So that's a modern day, like uh, like, yeah, like, all right, and we'll just leave it at that. Tex-Mex, that's a modern-day example of syncretism, all right. Next Romana is the Pax Romana. Uh, that might be the most famous one you guys might be familiar with, but uh, Roman peace. If you study Roman culture, like, peace within the empire was unreal. Like, the peace within the empire was, was, was there. It was great. Um, now, if you were outside of the empire, it was a different story for you. You know, if you were in the Roman armies and the soldiers, it was a much different story. There was no peace for you. It was always conquering. But within, excuse me, within the empire, there was great peace. Um, with the exception, I mean, you can study right after Nero's death in AD 69. It was kind of what's known as the year of the four emperors. And it's kind of roll through these four guys, and you can study that. But I mean, within the empire was great peace. And guys, 1,500 years. I mean, you look at the United States. We've been around for how many years? And Civil War this and, and fighting going on even now. I mean, because it seems like politics, there's always something going on. But um, like, it was peace. So the Pax Romana, third, the Roman law. Roman law was unique, if you said it's rigid, but very flexible. One thing about the Roman law was that it was solely based on action and nothing to do with intention. Uh, Roman law had nothing to do with intention. They, they did not judge it. So like the idea of a hate crime um, would never be found in Roman law. And I'm not saying that those are right, right or wrong, but I'm just saying they would not have been found in Roman law. Um, I'll give an example uh, of this Roman law uh, and the flexibility that a man, when he died, had to leave. He was, was by law, had to leave 25% of uh, his estate to, um, to his son. And, but if he chose not to, like, he had the flexibility to not do it. But if the son was 
felt that, like, like the father, if I explain it this way, the father could say, my son, you know, is an idiot and doesn't deserve to have 25% of my estate. Well, the son then could challenge that, and the law would give flexibility to uh, allow that, to, um, uh, to change the, what the father had, had set in stone. Um, you know, back to the hate crime thing. You know, they, they, would, they would never have a, uh, a law against that because they would say, well, we already have a law against murder. And murder is murder. It doesn't matter whether it was done because you didn't like them racially or whatever. It's still murder. Um, and the consequence is still the same. Um, you know, Roman philosophy, basically there was an eyewitness to words and actions. There was no eyewitness to intention. Um, so that was Roman law. And so what's going to happen, guys, in Colossians is Paul's going to go after basically two overall things. And the first one is that Rome is not your hope. Now you can see where this begins to get very practical to us. Because what's really, what I think is really neat is Paul here in the midst of the greatness of the Roman Empire is saying to the Colossians, Rome is not your hope. Rome is not God. Rome is not going to f- uh, fix all of your problems and sustain you for all of this life. Rome is not the answer. And we can see today that Rome was not the answer, right? 2,000 years, we can see today that Rome eventually fell Rome was not God. Rome was not the hope. Rome was not the answer. But where it becomes very practical for us is we begin to see things that become our hope in the place of Christ today. It's not the Roman Empire, but it can be very easily the United States. It can be very easily the dollar bill that we earn for the hours we work at work. It can be our family. It can be our spouse. Those can be places of hope that we put, that we place our hope into rather than Christ. The other thing Paul's going to fight against is syncretism. Jesus plus my circumcision. Jesus plus today it's Jesus plus self-help. You know, that's a very common thing in, in many churches. Jesus plus, well, if I, just, you know, if I just read these books and if I just muster up enough energy to do what I need to do, then I'll get this taken care of. Um, Syncretism doesn't always look like obvious, I'm pulling this from the Muslim culture and this from the uh, Christian culture. It doesn't always look quite that obvious. So Paul is going to basically get after these two things. Um, But here in the beginning of Colossians, he really kind of begins off on a very encouraging note. So I want to reread to you just the first eight verses in Colossians chapter 1. He says this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. So now we get into Paul's basically his thanksgiving and prayer. And I want you to pay attention. What is Paul thankful for in the Colossians? Because if he's thankful for this in the Colossians, then there's these things that he's thankful for in the Colossians should be things that we can apply to us today. Things that we need to change or that Paul, if he was writing to the church called renovation, that he could say, I'm thankful for these things. So... Let's begin verse 3. He says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. 
Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to your made known to us your love in the Spirit. First thing I want you to see, the foundation here is that all the credit belongs to God. Paul says in verse 3, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. I want you to think about this for just a moment. All right, Paul is thanking God for what they're doing. Um, we live in a culture that thrives on appreciation, right? Like you, we want to be appreciated. We want to be thanked. Anybody here like to be thanked for the things that we do? I do. Heck Yeah. Like, yes, I got to thank you for my wife. Awesome. You know what that means? Woo. All right. Like, <laughs> right, I might get that. Good one. All right. So, like, we, and, and even in, ch- even in church culture, guys, and, and I don't, I don't think Paul is teaching us here that, that we should never thank a brother or sister. I don't think that was what Paul's saying. But I think he's setting a precedent here. He's setting a precedent that our gratitude first belongs to God. So when we think of something good that happens in a brother or sister's life or that they do, like our first instinct shouldn't be to necessarily to thank them, but to thank God. We thank God for what is going on in their life. And be cautious then in our thanking to that person. Um, again, I, don't, I think we should say thank you to each other. I don't think there's anything Paul's prohibiting that. But he's setting the precedent that understand that all of the good that's going on in those around you, that the thanks goes to God. And that's what Paul is saying, that we thank God. So that's the foundation, and this is going to be important to us as we move forward. So the question is, what is Paul encouraging them for? What is he thankful for, and what does it apply to us? So, how does it apply to us? So first of all, we, we talk about, and this, this is kind of sermon one, okay? Imitating the Colossians. Imitating the Colossians. What is Paul thankful that they are doing? First of all, do not, first comment I want to make is, do not separate your love for Christ from your love for his church. Colossians 1.4 says, since we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints. So it's your love, your faith in Christ Jesus and your love for all the saints. You know, we, we live in a culture today, and, and I don't want to say a whole lot about this because we just came out of Covenant Community Series a few weeks ago. Um, but, but we live in a culture where we hear phrases like, I love God, I just can't stand the church. Or I just can't stand those church people. And like, look, all right. Those people that you can't stand, I can't stand either, and probably neither can God. Right? But the fact is this, is that God sent his son Jesus to die for his bride, which is called the church. And we find that in local expressions called local churches or local bodies of believers, local gatherings. This is what Renovation Church is. And so to say that you love God but not love the church, not love the saints, is it's not possible I mean, that, that's really, uh, um, I mean, you can struggle with the saints. I mean, I struggle with the church, guys. I mean, that's, that's real life. Um, but to say that you love God but not love the thing for which he cares the most about, 
sending his son Jesus to die is not possible. Um, I want to talk about that a little bit more in depth in a few minutes, so I don't want to get ahead of myself. But the next thing that we see is live so that your faith is public. Live so that your faith is public. So these are the things that the Colossians are doing that we should be imitating. Like our love for Christ and our love for the church, they both should be present. Both should be, and, and, and guys, you know, if I'm evaluating Renovation Church, as I'm called to do, like I see this true, right? So be encouraged. I think if Paul was writing to Renovation Church, he would say, I thank God for your love for Christ and your love for the saints. Now we still have lots of room to grow in this, okay? Lots of room to grow. But I, I think there's something that we should be um, not satisfied, but, you know, noticing that we have at least some of this done. Next, live such a faith is public. Verse 4 says, Since we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. Let me give you some information here. Paul never, uh, at least when he was writing this, had never met those in the city of Colossae. So Paul's writing this letter to the Colossians, having never met the Colossians. Because what happens is Paul's ministering in Ephesus, and while he's there, Epaphras, whatever, that dude, gets saved. He meets Jesus, and then he goes to Colossae and leads people to Christ. And this is where the church forms. So Paul is writing this letter to the Colossians, having never met them. And he says these things. Like, he's thanking God for these things. So the question is, how is he thanking God for these things? The reason and and the how is because their faith has been lived in a public way. That, that it's known. You know, and, and thinking about us, how many of us, like, can honestly say that our coworkers know where our faith is at? Like, it doesn't mean they have to know every little in and out of, of our belief system. You know, they don't have to know, you know, the intricacies of your theology. It's not what I'm talking about. But, like, they know you're a follower of Christ that that you seek to follow him every day, that you love him. You know, whatever that might look like. It might not be your job. It might be your friends. It might be uh, your husband's co-workers or your wife's co-workers. Um, you live so that your faith is public. Um, you know, their love for the saints, guys, in this text is intensive rather than extensive. And so when Paul's talking about their love, he's talking about their intensive love for those that they're already in relationship with. That's the saints he's talking. He's not talking about extensively, meaning the saints of all time. Paul's referring here to the Christians that they're already a part of, that they already know, that they're close to. Not Christians everywhere. So I hope that puts that in perspective when you think about this love and Living so that your faith is public. Next thing is place your hope in Christ's return. Place your hope in Christ. This is something for us to imitate. In order to have love for each other and Christ. Right? So what's he say in, in verse, 15, or verse 5? Let's read that again. Uh, 4 and 5. He says, Since we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope you laid up or the laid up for you in heaven. So they have a love for Christ, 
and love for all the saints because of their hope laid up in heaven. You ever heard of the, heard the phrase, you know, they're so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good? You ever heard that phrase? Um, I listened to a sermon um, by John Piper. He was actually preaching from the same text. And uh, his, the whole thesis was proving that that statement is incorrect. And that someone who is genuinely living for the hope that is to come, that there's no possible way that they could be no earthly good. And I think he nails it. I think he does a good job. Uh, it's from a sermon back in the early 80s, uh, so a young piper. Uh, and, but it was really like our hope, guys, I think some of us don't live impactful lives and, and the people around us because we don't live with a hope. Like we live as if today's it. You know what I'm saying? Like today is the day. Um, and we don't think about and live today in light of the future and live today in light of the hope that we have. And I'm not talking about doing that so that you might think positively. Like I'm think like you live today knowing that he's coming back, like knowing and all that that entails. We live placing our hope in Christ. And he says here that you have a love for Christ and a love for each other because of the hope that's laid up. If we want to have the kind of church that God's called us to have, the kind of love for Christ, Paul's saying here that it involves laying up a hope in heaven and the hope in Christ's return. I want you to think, where, where are some places that you put your hope at? Or some places that you put your hope at? Maybe the actions of others? Um, our jobs? I think those are easy ones to put our, our money. Those are easy places for us to put our hope that are clearly wrong. I mean, we know that that's wrong. Money is temporary. Our God is eternal. Um, another place that may not be quite so obvious is placing our hope in our spouse. If you put your hope in your spouse, they're not perfect and they're going to fail. Um, placing our hope in a church? No. I mean, the church is going to fail, right? Like we're not, not, not overall, but the church is made up of imperfect people. When we place our hope in the God who died for the church, who established the church, we place our hope there, um, not in our spouse, not in the church. Next and lastly, the gospel transforms lives wherever it goes. Now, this is obviously not something for us to imitate this phrase, but it's a fact that we see that Paul is stressing here at the end of verses 5 through 8. <clears throat> Paul says, Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel which has come to you as indeed in the whole world is bearing fruit and increasing as it, is, as it also does among you since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God and truth just as you learned it from Epaphras our beloved fellow servant he is faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to you the love and the spirit first of all we see that the gospel is reliable we see what Paul is saying to us in these things that he's encouraging them and thanking God that they're doing then he reminds them 
of the gospel. Now this is going to be key because what Paul's getting ready to tell them uh, in his prayer, he's praying for them to do, praying these actions. He's getting ready to say, I'm praying for you guys to do these things. And he's going to remind us of the importance, or going to remind the Colossians of the importance of the gospel in these things that he's encouraging them to do. But right here, he's thanking God for the things that they've done, and then he's closing it out with a reminder of the gospel. And I want you to see how this is important. The gospel, first of all, is reliable. In the Old Testament, truth involves ideas of like reliability and authenticity. Like Those are the ideas that carry out of the Old Testament for these, the word truth. And so the word of truth then is a word or a message that can be relied upon. So what Paul implies here is that the gospel is reliable and true and to be contrasted with the false teachings that's going on in the city of Colossae. We don't have time today to, to dive into some false teachings and there's debate on whether or not there was actually a Colossian heresy that was going on among scholars and um, but just suffice it for right now, there was false teaching. There has always been false teaching outside of God's camp and even infiltrating into God's camp. So Paul is saying, in contrast to the falseness of that that's being taught out there, the gospel is true, reliable, and authentic. Next, the gospel is bearing fruit. He says this in this passage, the gospel, it, it's the work of the gospel that's bearing fruit. I love it. Paul starts off with, I thank God for what's going on in your lives, and you're doing this, and you're doing this, and you're doing this. And then, by the way, it's the gospel that is bearing the fruit. Does that make sense? You see, see what I'm trying to say? Like what Paul's saying? I thank God for what's going on in your life, and you're, and you're doing this, and you're doing this, and you're doing this. But it's the gospel that's bearing fruit in your lives. That's why I started off by thanking God, because it's the gospel. And then all the stuff in between is God's credit. The gospel is bearing fruit. Um, it's interesting. Bearing fruit, Paul, I, I believe, is, is basically this, this language is reminiscent of the genera, uh, Genesis account, the creation story where God commands humans to be fruitful and increase in number. After the flood, he gives the same, uh, the same command again to be fruitful and increase in number, uh, to be productive. This idea of bearing fruit, the gospel is bearing fruit. Lastly, the gospel works through mankind. We see that Epaphras was saved in Ephesus and then took the gospel to Colossae. We see him as a faithful minister. So Paul doesn't make it to Colossae. But, at least that we know of. Epaphras is the one that takes the gospel there. And because of his work and faithful work, or the gospel's work through Epaphras, the church in Colossae say, I mean, these, these people meet Christ. And so obvious, the, the obvious application for us is, who could Paul thank God for you being a faithful minister to? Just think about that for a moment. Who could God, or could Paul, thank God? you being a faithful minister to. So, what we see here is all the credit belongs to God. We give thanks to God and 
You cannot separate the love of Christ from the love of the church and living so that your faith is public and placing our hope in heaven and knowing that at the end of the day that it's the work of the gospel. And, it's, and if you, you well, let's leave it at that. Knowing it's the work of the gospel that has done this in us. This leads us then to sermon number two. You're going, wow, that's the fastest sermon you've ever preached. Yes, it is. Uh, well, yeah, even my very first sermon was like 55 minutes. Uh, but anyways, that's because I just rambled on about a bunch of nothing. My first sermon was, this is a rabbit trail. My first sermon was titled The Twelve Stooges. Uh, no joke. Uh, and I, pr- I got my, <laughs> yeah. Uh, it was about, you know, when Jesus goes, do I have to explain it to you all again? You, you, know, when, you know when Jesus has said that to the disciples? Anybody? Yeah. I'm like, yeah, man. Um, and then, I, of course, I'm not thinking, yeah, I'm one of, yeah, I'm one of them too. <laughs> but uh, anyways, all right. So Paul's prayer, and this is concerning, I, I believe Paul's prayer is concerning the Christian journey, at least in general here. Um, Let's read Colossians 1, starting in verse 9 through 14. It says, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking you that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness, transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. So Paul prays for the church in Colossae. And the first thing that he prays is that they would be filled with the knowledge of his will. Paul would pray the same thing for us today, that we would be filled with the knowledge of his will. Verse 9, And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. You know what this means for the church in Colossae and for us today? That means that we are not currently completely filled with the knowledge of his will. A.K.A., you don't have it all figured out, and neither do I. Now, you're going, duh, Matthew. Like, I know that. I know I don't have it all figured out. Then why do we approach life absent of seeking the knowledge of his will as if we do have it figured out? Guys, nine times out of ten, most counseling sessions I find myself in, trying to make a decision, trying to figure something out, man, the first place I go, where are you at with God? Have you been studying? Have you been praying? Have you been spending time in God's Word? And the answer to all of those except for praying is usually no. We live life as if we do have the full knowledge of his will. And then we wonder why we, get, we find ourselves in positions that we don't know what to do or we've been making bad decisions. The knowledge of his will. So let's, let's dig this in. And what Paul's talking about, I believe here, is progressive sanctification. So we're justified at the moment we're saved, but then we progress through sanctification. We progress through the knowledge of his will. Um, And I want to say this, we need to daily be reminded that we are not 
full and that we are being filled. Okay, and we're not talking about being full of the Holy Spirit. It's not what we're talking. We're talking about the knowledge of His will, which does come through the power of the Holy Spirit. But we're not talking about that. We are being sanctified, and this happens primarily through growing in the knowledge of God. And this is going to be key as, as we finish up here. Now, here's the deal. Paul is not talking about, in this text, and this is important, he's not talking about someone discovering the particular direction for their life. Okay? Paul's not praying for the church in Colossae for you to figure out where you're supposed to go to school at or what, who you're supposed to marry. That's not Paul's concern here. Paul is talking about, guys, and catch this, Paul's talking about a deep and abiding understanding of the revelation of Christ and all that he means for the universe and for the Colossians. That's what Paul is talking about. I, I'm going to go ahead and say this. I don't, I don't want to get ahead of myself. Remember when Russ preached about discerning God's will? And it wasn't so much about discerning God's will as it was about knowing God and learning him it's about a deep and abiding understanding of the revelation of Christ. You want to know God's will for your life? Know God. Know God. And that's what Paul's praying for them, is to have a deep and abiding understanding of the knowledge of his will. The next phrase on there says, with the knowledge of God. So Paul, you can see Paul gets frustrated all the time with spiritually immature believers. I mean, just, just a quick glance over Paul, and Paul's going, you should be eating meat, and you're still eating milk. What are you thinking? Like, this is Paul's words, and eat meat. Something deep, something that you need to chew on. Something that you might even choke on. Something that you might have to spit back out and chew it up again. The knowledge of God. I, I like Rob Turner, uh, Pastor Apex. He said this the other day. He said, maybe the reason we don't get anything out of Scripture is because we don't desire Scripture to get anything out of us. We approach God's word simply wanting to know knowledge for the sake of knowledge, or we just want to know about God. Um, but let me quickly remind us that our call to know God, to love that truth, the, the God that we're seeking knowledge, to love it, and then that results in our actions. To love God without knowledge is worthless. To have know God without love for him is worthless. It takes both. Lots of Christians know lots, or lots of people know lots about God and yet are still going to hell. Lots of people love God and know nothing about him and are still going to hell. We know God and we love the truth about that God and then our actions follow. All right. With the knowledge of God. And then he says, in all spiritual wisdom understanding. So the question then is, what kind of knowledge... What kind of knowledge is it that, that we are to gain? And Paul, I think Paul tells us, Paul says spiritual wisdom and understanding. Now, a little bit of background. Uh, Aristotle, basically, uh, the philosopher Aristotle basically talked about three 
virtues are intellectual virtues. One being wisdom, second being understanding, and the third being prudence. And Paul here is tagging on wisdom and understanding. And wisdom, it's interesting if you study the Old Testament, wisdom and understanding are frequently paired in the Greek Old Testament and in Judaism as well. Uh, These are virtues that we see that are central for godly leaders. You can see this in Moses. If you want to read Exodus 31 and 35, you'll see that Moses had wisdom and understanding. These are virtues that are given to those who fear the Lord. You can read that in Proverbs chapter 1 and chapter 2. And here's what the combination of those two words suggests. The ability to discern the truth and to make good decisions based on that truth. So when Paul is growing in knowledge, spiritual wisdom and understanding, he's seeing grow in the ability to discern the truth and to make good decisions based on that truth. And of course, the Old Testament context makes clear that the truth only comes from God. So Paul, here's what go, what's going on here. Paul's praying for them to grow in the knowledge of his will, accompanied by discerning the truth and make good decisions based on that truth. Then in all of this that he's telling them to do, he reminds them that the truth, that or we know from the content that this truth only comes from God, and that in order to know this truth, we must grow in the knowledge of God. Do you see the circle? We grow in the knowledge of God, which results in spiritual discernment and understanding, and then we use that as we grow in the knowledge of God. And it's all from God, and it's all dependent on God. No wonder Paul thanks God for what's going on in the Colossians. Next, we walk in a way that glorifies God. First of all, we're filled with the knowledge of God, then walk in a way that glorifies God. Colossians 1.10, and we're running out of time, so we're going boogie. Colossians 1.10a says, So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him. All right, so first of all, the Lord sets the standard of our worthy walk. Quick comment. Stop comparing yourself to other people around you. You will always find someone who is more terrible than you are in everything, all right? Whether that's playing an instrument or the way you talk to your wife or the way you parent, you will always find someone, I guarantee you, that's worse. Or at least you can make them... You think they're worse in your eyes. God sets the standard. The Lord sets the standard. He says, fully pleasing to him. This is further clarification, I believe, of the manner worthy. So the the manner worthy is fully pleasing to him. This manner we're walking away that is worthy and is fully pleasing to him. Underneath that, we see it says that we bear fruit in every good work. What's, what's that mean? Colossians 1.10, the second half of that verse says, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. How do we walk in a manner worthy? What do you think? How do, how do we walk in a manner worthy? By bearing fruit in every good work. By bearing, this bearing fruit and growing, again, it's language from creation. 
I believe an implication of this text, and you can look into this later, is that God is seeking through the response to the gospel to confirm his original purpose and creation and establish human beings in his own image. I think what God is doing in the gospel and this bearing this fruit is kind of a reestablishment of the original purpose and intention for mankind. I think it's part of what Paul's pointing to here. And we, you can look at that later, but going on Colossians 1, verse 5 and 6, it says, Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you, as indeed the whole world is bearing fruit and increasing, it also does among you. Um, so it's about the extension of the gospel to many, is what Paul's talking about earlier on in this passage. He's talking about the gospel being effective in going to many people. Now, Paul's talking about the work of the gospel in their specific lives. Basically, again, verses extensive to intensive. Intensive work of the gospel in the people in Colossae, in their lives. Um, And bearing fruit is to manifest itself in every kind of good work. Fruit comes about as we do good work. Does that make sense? Like fruit comes about as we do good work. These things that are pleasing to God come about as we do good work. But remember, it's the grace that motivates our good work, and it's God who is working through us. And we see this in Philippians chapter 2. And the last thing I want to say about bearing fruit and this growing that we're called to do, growing happens in some relationship to the knowledge of God. And this, I think, is key for us to understand. This is, this is where we go next. The knowledge of God leads to bearing fruit. This is what everything we've been saying is building up to this point. I'm going to say two phrases. One is religion. One is the gospel. See if you can figure out which one is religion and which one is the gospel. First phrase, work or works lead to the knowledge of God. Knowledge of God leads to works. Don't raise your hand. Which one, the first one or the second one, which one is religion? Which one is the gospel? The second one is the gospel. The knowledge of God leads to works. So what happens is we fall in love with the nature and character of God, and this leads to a transformed life. As we bear more fruit, as we increase in our knowledge of God, 2 Corinthians 3.18, love this. He says, and we all with unveiled face, right, with nothing in between us, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. How are we transformed? By seeing and understanding the nature and character of God. This is how we're transformed. Now, you're saying, okay, duh. I get it. I know that. We know God, we change. We know God, we change. What are you getting at? What I'm getting at is this. 
We don't tend to fix our lives and our problems with that approach. We approach life like this. We go, all right, so I've got this problem, this problem in my life. I've got these things going on, and I need to fix them. So what happens? It's kind of like this. I cut my yard for the first time a week ago before Sarah and I went on vacation. And if you've seen my yard, I don't treat my yard like I'd like to, but at this point, I've not, not done it. So what I have is different, like, I have different grass and weeds from, like, all over the world, like, right in my yard, okay? You know? I even got the Sahara Desert in part of it, you know? It's lots of dry area. And so what happens is, like, I can go in, and I went in a week ago and just mowed it all down, right? Just chomped it all down. And then what happened? Within a day... There were certain weeds that were higher, certain grasses, sorry, that were higher than other parts of my yard, right? Have you all seen that? Like, it's only the dudes who have the yard sprayed and stuff that all grows evenly, you know, the whole thing. But my yard, like, you have this patch that's over here and this patch that's, you know, three inches higher. I'm like, I don't know how that happened, how it works, but they, they got go-go juice and the rest of my grass doesn't. Uh, so dogs must be fertilized in that area and not over here. Uh, and the, oh, the septic tank works well too, but, um, yeah. So what happens though? What happens in our lives is we, we list these problems and that's assuming we actually take the time to reflect on our lives anyways. All right. So assuming we, we do that, then we go, I've got this problem. I've got this problem. I've got this problem. Then what happens is we go at it. Like, or find scriptures that apply to it, and I'm going to go at it. And we mow it all down. And then what happens is we find ourselves a week later, two weeks later, a month later, with weeds popping up. I've got this issue popping up over here. And this issue is popping back up over here. And I think the problem is, is, and I believe we see this what Paul's talking about. The problem is, is that we're approaching it the wrong way. Paul does not tell them, hey, go figure out what's wrong with you. Matter of fact, I'll tell you. It's this, 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 and this. And then go fix it. But what does Paul tell them? And we see this consistent in Paul's writing. Paul tells them to grow in the knowledge of God. When we, were, when we were in the Manhood, Womanhood series, and we got to the end, and I said, guys and ladies, next week, I said, this is not about resolve. Like, don't make a promise, like a bunch of promise keepers, and then, and then go fail at it three weeks. Repent. Don't resolve. Repent. Seek God, and then move forward. Because it's a fundamental difference. Because between, I'm going to go at this and fix these problems in my life, as opposed to, I want to dive into the knowledge of who God is. And you're saying, Matt, it's just as simple as that. I'm saying, guys, it's just as simple as that. You know, these issues, sins in my life, it's not that I take a passive approach to them and just go, well, I'm just learning about Jesus. But there is something to be said. And we just sit at the feet of our Savior and we grow in the knowledge of Him and His character. So we begin to love His character as we begin to understand His character. And then His character then begins to live itself out through 
us. And those things that we need to fix don't seem quite so hard any longer. I really do think it's that easy. So you're saying, Matt, should I never reflect in the things and make a list of what's wrong? No, I'm not saying that. Like, we need to spend time. But we don't approach the things in our life going, all right, well, I'm just going to fix this, this, and this. But we first live and grow in the knowledge of our God. And then we fix those things as that moves forward. Um. Next, we depend on God's strength to glorify him. Verse 11, may you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. Because as we seek to grow and grow in our knowledge, we understand that it's not our strength. This is not something you can muster up. Particularly you men, listen to me, this is, this is not something we can just get up the, the gumption and do it. Our responsibility is to ask for it, plead for it, and submit to it. Because nothing less than God's indwelling power is required to live this life in a manner that is worthy of the Lord. The Greek word pos. For the word all here in this passage basically means a marker, uh, marker, a marker of the highest degree, meaning complete or unlimited power. So when Paul is, he's saying, may you be strengthened with all to the highest degree, complete, unlimited power according to his glorious might in order to live a life that's worthy of his name. The idea here is strengthened by God with the greatest strength imaginable. In Ephesians 1, 18-23, I want to read this. I want you to see how they kind of tie together. Paul says to to the Ephesians, he says, Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, which are the riches of his glorious inheritance of the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under the feet of him uh, and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is the body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And just see the language there. Paul, with his glorious mind and, and this life that he's called us to. And then understand this power. We've been filled with the power of Christ. I mean, it's what we see in this text, if you remember from when we studied this back in Covenant Community, that um, this, how does the church have the fullness of God? Well, first of all, Christ has all authority. The church has the fullness of Christ. And so if the church has the fullness of Christ and Christ has all the authority, then all the authority on the earth and all the power belongs to the church. So when we approach these things in our life and living in a manner worthy, we approach it primarily by growing in the knowledge of him. And as we do that, we're doing that with all authority and power on earth. Like, the idea, guys, of us being the same person today that we were three months ago is anti-gospel. 
You know what I'm saying? Like, we should be changing daily, growing in the knowledge of God. He says, His glorious mind is more than adequate. Remember, it's God's power. And we depend on God's strength, thirdly, there to run with endurance and patience. Colossians 1.11 It says, May you be strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. The strength to be given that Paul is praying for is the strength for endurance and patience. Now, we don't see this as quite such a big deal because we don't understand how big of a deal the race is that we're in. Like, first of all, I mean, understand that this endurance, and some of this is for persecution for the church in Colossae. But we don't understand how much endurance we need because typically we approach our Christian faith lethargically. And if we approach it with the honor that it's due... And the effort and integrity to which we should approach walking a, a faith, a life that's worthy of the manner to which he's called us, then we'll understand the endurance and the patience that we need to walk this life. Which then drives us to what? To dependence on his power. We need patience. Some of us, and we need endurance, but first of all, with endurance, guys, uh, like... For us, like, it may not be uh, persecution outside of the church, but for us, endurance does not get distracted by stupid things. Endurance to not put so much value on things that don't matter. Um, Some of us get distracted by, well, I'll just leave it at that. We pray for endurance. Pray for endurance as you're seeking the knowledge of Him. Pray for patience. As you get to know the character of God, you understand His patience. Remember we talked about why is a man work and his workings working against him? It's to remind us that God has a plan and we keep working against God. So as we grow in our knowledge of God, we understand His patience for us. Then patience with other people around us become much more, much becomes much more easy. Um, well, we need patience. We need patience in being rebuked, patience in dealing with others around you, patience in getting to where God is taking you, patience ultimately in the trials that God is placing you in. Pray for patience. Last thing, be thankful as you remember. This is what Paul is telling to those in Colossians. Be thankful as you remember. He says in verse 12, first part, give me thanks to the Father. Give me thanks to the Father. We, we have to stop being negative people. Some of us, I mean, some of us are generally positive. Uh, 
Some of us are incredibly negative sometimes. We, we just have to watch that. Okay, Paul is telling us this. As we live this life and walking in a manner worthy of the Lord, we are giving thanks to the Father. On your worst day, hear me very clearly, on the day that your emotions and life has you at the bottom, you can still be thankful and joyful. I know that that's hard, but it's still true. Thankful, as you remember what? That he has qualified you. 12a, give me thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. What Paul's saying is that I'm a sinner, you are a sinner, yet because of the blood that's washed over us, we are able to enter. Understand also, Paul is telling us that we're passive in this situation. Like Paul didn't say that who has qualified you through walking that aisle and joining that church. Now you get the inheritance. Or, you know, he has qualified you because you said that sinner's prayer that you prayed when you were four years old. And now you get an inheritance. Or, Paul is also not saying that he has qualified you by all the good things that you continue to do in your Christian life so that now you can receive an inheritance. No, he's saying it's God who qualified you. He did the action. You did nothing. All glory, praise, credit goes to him. Um, we're passive. Um, and I want to remind you guys, you're, like, listen to me, you are not able you are not able to do what God has called you to do, okay? He has to qualify you to do what he's called you to do. So, I mean, the implicate, he's talking here specifically about salvation, but this has implications beyond that. And one of those is that the things that he's called us to do, and primarily here he's talking about living this life that's worthy of this calling, but for us also is that whatever God has called us to do in walking out that manner, he qualifies us for as well. Think about this way. God doesn't choose or call the qualified. He qualifies the chosen. Does that make sense? So he doesn't, okay, well, you're pretty good at that. So God's going, I think I need you on my team. So I'm going to bring you along. No, God looks at you and goes, you can't do this except for with my strength. So now I'm going to qualify you to do what I've called you to do. That's how God works. And that's important because if we approach life and what God's called us to do as if we have it figured out or if that we just need to improve because I've already got this down for the most part, but I just need to improve a little bit, we're missing the point. The point is, is that God is the one who first qualified us and he's the one that continues to sanctify us in everything. And that includes what he's called us to do. Even as pastor, guys, I, I don't, I can't approach even preaching, leading you guys as if I'm good to go. And I, I just, there's just a few areas I need to improve on. No, I have to approach it as if I am fully dependent upon God in every aspect of my life. And that he is continuing to qualify me. So he's qualified you. He, what else has he done? He has delivered you from the dark. Colossians 1.13, For he's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of his sins. 
So first of all, he's, he's delivered us into the kingdom of his son. Into the kingdom. We delivered into a final destination, but also more applicable, he has delivered us into a new race today. Into a new mission, a new purpose. That's part of the, uh, if you study theology much, there's this concept of the already not yet, where it's, there's part of his kingdom is realized now, but it will be fully realized in the future. And so we have been delivered into his kingdom now that is realized today. And then in the Son, we have redemption and forgiveness. Now, before I say this last phrase, I want to encourage you guys. Like, when we're singing, when we're worshiping, like these truths should be popping into your head. And when we're worshiping God, if, if the truths of Scripture is not popping into your head, then there's a couple things that could be wrong. Either you're just dead to the world, like the Holy Spirit's not moving, all right? Or there's no knowledge in there for which the Holy Spirit to bring to the forefront of your mind. But that's kind of a side note because I just, I want us to, as we worship to, like, he says, giving thanks. I mean, this is an act of worship. As we remember what? As we remember that he qualified us, that he delivered us. So, in light of all this, what do we do in response? Seek to grow in the knowledge of God bearing much fruit as we depend on the strength of God and as we remember the past and present work of God in our lives. It's how we walk in a manner worthy. Um, and that's the beginning of Colossians, all right? And 14 verses and... Uh, 50, uh, 65 minutes later, I think we are done. Um, here's what I want to do. We're, we're not going to sing, but I just want to take a few, few moments. I want you to bow your heads, and uh, I just want you to take a few moments and pray. Um, just ask God to point out to you what... I mean, let me rephrase that. Ask God to give you a desire to grow in the knowledge of Him. And I know some of you have this desire already and are doing it. Beg him to give it to you even more, okay? Like even stronger. And th that doesn't necessarily mean that he's going to give you five extra hours for the remaining weeks to study him. But he may intensify your time with him. He may make it more productive. We can always grow in, in our desire for our knowledge for him. So you guys pray, and then I'll pray for you guys, and then we'll be dismissed. Father, I uh, 
I pray that you would help us to see that we fail at walking in a manner worthy. But Father, I I pray that you also see that there's hope, that we also see that there's hope, that we have to depend on your power, your might, to to, to work through this life, to, to glorify you with our actions. Father, help us to approach this thing all differently. Instead of just trying to fix the little things, but instead sitting at the feet of Jesus and growing in our knowledge. What, what does that look like to sit at the feet of Jesus? It means to study you, to learn about you, to grow in our knowledge of your character and understanding your character and who you are. And who you created us to be. And what your purpose and plan is on this earth. Through all of that we get to know who our creator is. And who he was. And who he has always been and will always be. And then as we grow to understand. In our understanding of who you are. Then we grow in our understanding of who we were meant to be. Father please just Give us the grace to be the people you've called us to be. Father, work your mighty power in our lives. Draw us closer. Give us an unquenchable thirst for the knowledge of you. Empower us in that by the working of your Holy Spirit. That we just can't get enough. And just when we thought we've had enough, Father, give us a desire for more. Father, we pray this week as, as we come up, come upon the day we celebrate as the day that you died on the cross for our sins and rose again on the third day. Father, I pray that this would not just be another religious routine or exercise that we take part in in the, in the days ahead, but Father, that they would be serious moments of reflection and thought on just what you did first and foremost to glorify yourself and to bring honor to your name and then the benefits that the cross then can be applied to us Father thank you so much send your Holy Spirit to empower us give us grace to do what you've called us to do it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. You guys are dismissed. Have a great day.